So we're Steve and Carol Petzl, down from Billings. We're interim pastors, uh, as Kenny and Connie have resigned, and uh, I think today they're in Atlanta and uh, on their way to uh, a retreat center that our family of churches, Foursquare, helps provide for pastors, so that's an exciting for them. And uh, Sam Rockwell, who is the district supervisor of the churches of this area, asked us to come for a few weeks here and share God's word with you and uh, kind of step in as, as you, are, you are praying and we are praying for God's uh, next pastor for this church. And so today, um, if you're visiting us, uh, we welcome you here. Thank you for having the courage to come to church and to walk into a place where you may not know anybody. And I wouldn't know if you're visiting here or not. Um, and so I can say that, but uh, really uh, we want a place to be warm, that people can come. It's a place, uh, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to come here, not because you got your act together, but because you're looking for something bigger than you that will help you understand your life and uh, will help you receive forgiveness and walk on in a new life, which we call the scripture, you may have heard it called being born again. We had that opportunity for a second chance to walk with the Lord, and he's gracious enough to give us the third and fourth and fifth and the umpteenth millionth chance. And so today, during the service, once a month, this church celebrates communion, the Lord's Supper, also called Eucharist in many denominations, and uh, all the Christian church uh, collectively practices two sacraments. We are sacramental religion. Sacrament means we have, uh, at least some churches have more than two sacraments, but all do these two. And a sacrament is, uh, is a, uh, a symbol of something that's spiritual that we don't see, but we do these outward signs of something that we've experienced in our lives. One of those sacraments is baptism. And the second one that we celebrate today is communion or the Lord's Supper. And so we have up here elements of grape juice and unleavened bread, which represents the body and blood of Christ. And on the night he was betrayed, he spoke about this. I'm going to read from Matthew 26, 26. I'm sorry, my mic is popping. If I keep my head up, should be okay. All right, Matthew 26, 26. That is bad, popping. Are we going to be okay? All right. Um, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, before he's going to go to the cross, he calls the disciples together, and he finds an upper room in, in Jerusalem to serve them the Passover meal, which had been done for centuries and centuries. And this time, though, he changes it. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, I'm starting actually in verse 17 of Matthew 26, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed, I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover meal. When evening came, Jesus was reclined at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to one another and to him, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. And while they were eating, in the midst of this Passover meal, which is a multi-course meal, it has many elements to it, he took two of those elements. He took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And to those disciples, that was the first time they'd ever heard this. For every Jew, this bread represented the bread of affliction when they fled out of Egypt. When God said, Make bread, but you don't have time for it to rise. Make unleavened bread, because you will be released from captivity, and you will follow Moses, and you are going to be free. So quickly, make this bread. And so they, to them, it was a symbol of being released from captivity, from slavery, from years of oppression and pain and tears and whippings and unjust labor. 
But now he said, this represents my body, which does the same thing, sets us to be free. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And this cup that he gave, there's four cups usually poured during the Passover meal. Four times you drink. This is the third cup. And he said, take it this time, and it just doesn't represent the fruit of the vine and the life that God gives us. It represents my blood. And he never drank the fourth cup with them because he said, I will not drink again with you until we are in our Father's kingdom. And the Bible talks about when we'll drink that fourth cup with Jesus. It will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so in Revelation, the end of the scriptures, which shows to us the culmination, the consummation of our faith, when we will be in the presence of Jesus. And in a sense, the scripture brings it to us as a metaphor of marriage. We are his bride. He is, in our, he is our groom. And it says these words. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, and he added these are the true words of God. And so today as we partake of this communion, he said, do this in remembrance of me, for I will not eat or drink with you until we drink it in the kingdom, in the culmination, in the revelation, in the manifestation of his kingdom. And so today we do this in three aspects. We do it to remember what he's done in the past. We do it for the present to remember he's with us and the sacrifice and that we do need to eat and drink of him. John 6 says, anyone who eats of me and drinks of me will have true life. Now, we do that not literally, but we do it spiritually. We drink and eat of him through prayer, through his word, through fellowship, coming to church and growing. And then the third aspect, the communion always has a future aspect, that we will drink the fourth cup of the Passover meal with Jesus at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So it speaks also of our faith that Jesus will come again and set up his kingdom and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so as you come forward today to receive communion, I believe the, the tradition of this church is you come forward, get elements, and then you go back and pray with your family. So if you are visiting here today, we just ask that you would get your elements and go back. And then we usually partake of the bread first. It says, take and eat of this. He said, the first order for this is now my body broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. And then we drink the cup, which is the cup of the blood of the new covenant. And remember, do these not only in remembrance of what he's done in the past 2,000 years ago as he hung on the cross, shed his blood and broke his body for us, but also his presence with us now and also the anticipation that we will drink this with him in fulfillment of the final cup of the Passover meal. So, Lord, as we come forward today to receive these elements, I pray that we would always do this in remembrance of you. Jesus, you are the center of this sacrament. You are the center of these elements. It's all about you, Jesus, and let us focus on you. We thank you, Lord, that again we will be physically with you in your new kingdom at the marriage supper when our consummation as your bride will be manifest and fulfilled. We love you, Jesus. Come and give us spiritual food today. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, just a, a little bit about us. If you weren't here last week, a few things were said. Uh, but we have uh, five children. We have 18 grandchildren. And they are our prize and joy. And we know there's big families here, too. And that's awesome. And uh, we are just privileged to be here for however time God has. And uh, three of our sons are pastors. So this morning, our oldest son, he's the senior pastor of Billings Faith Chapel. 
Our second son is a pastor of New Hope in Seattle, and our third son uh, pastors in Stanwood at the Stanwood Foursquare Church. We have a fourth son who's an environmental scientist, and he lives in Eugene, Oregon, and we have a daughter uh, who lives in Seattle with her husband. And so that's kind of a little bit of our background. We were born and raised in Colorado, so all of the West feels very uh, at home to us. We spent, before we, we arrived in Billings about five years ago, before that, we were 13 years in Oregon in the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, but coming back here to where it's a little drier, a little less uh, rain, it's felt very much at home. So, and uh, I'm excited it's hunting season. Okay, so, and, uh, so uh, I don't know how else to, to, uh, to share what I want to start a little journey with us, if you wouldn't mind, for the next uh, weeks ahead is that we would go through the book of Jonah. Now, I don't know if that, if Kenny preached through the book of Jonah before, maybe many times, yes. But um, it's become a special book to me and my wife. It's challenged us. As a matter of fact, just this week, some lessons that we had learned from our study of Jonah challenged us. We saw how our heart wasn't like God's heart this last week. And so uh, it was kind of confirmation to me that we should, as a congregation, go through the book of Jonah. So we'll be doing that. It's only four chapters, but it may take a couple years to get through it. Uh, it's one of those uh, books that it's hard to believe all of that is in there once we start looking deeply into Jonah. And uh, uh, so much has been written about Jonah. Lately, one of the greatest works is by Tim Keller, the great pastor, one of the most influential teachers and pastors in America at this time, and uh, much of what I'll share with you I can't take credit for, but what I've learned from him and others who have uh, pulled apart Jonah, some of them in, in the original language, and have uh, shared things with us. So, uh, if you wouldn't mind, if you'd open up your Bibles or in your phones or however you do to, uh, to Jonah, in my Bible it's on 1051, not that that matters to you, but uh, it's a great book. I would encourage you this week, could you read through the book of Jonah in totality at one sitting? It's actually very easy, probably takes about 10 minutes, uh, and read one through four. And then as a second challenge, read it in a different translation. Read it in your favorite translation that you use, but then just to challenge yourself, try this week to read in a second translation and see what God begins to show you. So I stand here with much trepidation and intimidated and nervous knowing Kenny's been a great, great pastor here for so many years, and it's so hard to uh, just step in even, even for a short time, even as a substitute, until God brings you your next pastor. So uh, I do this in great fear and trembling that I can share God's word with you as good as he has over the years. And maybe my style may be different, and I hope that doesn't get in the way and that we both grow. But I want to challenge you that you're going to have to be open to God really messing with your life as we study Jonah. All right, why, why should we come to the Lord if we are left just like we are? Remember, I started out by saying, may this be a place where it's okay to not be okay, to come here and to see and peer into what are these strange people that have a relationship with somebody they call Jesus, and the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Who are these people? But I also want you to know God loves us so much that we can come just like we are, but he loves us so much he, won't, he doesn't want us to stay just like we are. He wants us to become more like him and grow like him. And so the book of Jonah has done that to me, has wrecked me in many ways for the better. You know, you can be wrecked for the better, right? You can be uh, put through. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in an encounter with God's Word that changes your heart, that molds you to be like the Father's heart. And Jonah has done that for me. So I think I have, oh, there's a slide. I don't, I don't we're doing this first time of showing slides. And uh, did Kenny show slides and things kind of sometimes? Okay, so we'll see how this works. Maybe I'll stand over here so I can see what's up on the screen. Okay, so... Uh, Jonah is kind of a, um, it, it's almost gotten to the point of a fable. It's almost like a, a nursery rhyme because the center is on a big fish. 
right? And it almost seems fanciful to us. It's like, this is just a fantasy. This is just a metaphor God put down. Uh, you know, we have a hard time believing a fish could swallow a man. Well, we know there's big whales. We know there's fish big enough to do that. But then for a man to live through that and three days later to be spit up on the beach as whale vomit um, is pretty astounding to us. But I want you to know that's not what the book's about. It's only two short little verses that mention the fish. But somehow to us, and maybe it's because of our children's Bibles and what we read to our children, the fish becomes the center of Jonah. It becomes what it's all about. But I want you to know it, it holds a very minor part in the book of Jonah. But Jesus does refer to it, and we'll look at that uh, later on. So uh, I want you to, to understand that the miracle of Jesus and the resurrection is a greater miracle than a man spending three days in a fish and surviving. Okay, the resurrection is a bigger miracle. And so for all of us who have a hard time believing that Jonah and this time he spent in the belly of a fish could be true, if you believe in the resurrection, then I want you to extend the possibility of that miracle to the book of Jonah and of what happened there. And remember, it's not, we used to call it a, you can go on the internet and type in Jonah and say a whale of a tail and everything. Never mentions that it's a whale. But uh, it's just like, what do we do in Adam and Eve when they ate the forbidden fruit? We all think it was an apple. We have no idea that it was an apple. We, uh, we're coming to Christmas. We think there were uh, how many wise men? Three, but there's probably many more than that. There were just three gifts. No caravan would cross the immense desert that they came through with three guys. They would have most likely, most scholars believe there's nine. So see, we have a lot of things that we live in assumptions of. But just, if you believe in the miracle that's possible for Jesus to raise from the dead, then I want to tell you, it's very easy to believe that a man could survive in a fish. All right, so let's go and uh, read it a little bit. I got a few verses I think up here. And uh, this is on NIV. I don't know what translation you use, mostly in this church or personally, but just for a common touch, we will use the NIV for the next weeks ahead. Jonah flees from the Lord. So these are the first Three verses of the book of Jonah. There's so much in here that uh, let's read this together. Uh, you don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it. You can uh, we'll read along with me. The word of the Lord <clears throat> came to Jonah, son of Amittai. <coughs> Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. Now, here's a little map of what's going on, I think. Is that the next slide? Yeah. So maybe, um, okay, for one thing, I want you to know that all the biblical archaeology, all the scholars, we absolutely do not exactly know where Tarshish was. That's where he's fleeing to. So there's Joppa on the coast of Israel, and Jonah gets a word from God, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is about 550 miles inland. And he said, I want you to go there, and I want you to preach. And these are the Assyrian people. We're going to talk about them in a minute. Their capital city is Nineveh. This is a great city, a big city. Jonah's kind of a rural prophet guy. He goes down to Joppa. When he gets the word from the Lord, we don't know exactly where he got the word from the Lord. It wasn't in Joppa. It says he goes down to Joppa to get a ship to sail the other way. The main thing to look from the map is Tarshish is as far away as you can get from Nineveh. What he's saying is, I am going not just a little out of the way to avoid this call from God. I am going to the farthest ends of the earth that we know of away from here. Most scholars and reading other literature at this time put out by Israel, Tarshish seemed to be what we would call the ends of the earth for them. It was as far away as any place. So we believe it's somewhere out there. That's kind of on the Iberian Peninsula there. Maybe the coast of Spain is where Tarshish was. It's a guess, but it's the best guess we have. All we know, I just want you to think of it this way. It's as far away from obedience to God as Jonah could figure out how to go to, all right? Now, let's go, to, let's look at the next slide. 
So these four chapters in Jonah, they give an account of two incidences. Now you have to see this, that chapter 1 and 2 and chapter 3 and 4 really parallel each other. In the first two chapters, we have the story of Jonah running from God and disobeying. In the third and fourth chapter, we have a picture of Jonah obeying God now, following the same word and the outcome of that. But I want you to know in both of these, Jonah does not come out as a star. Even in that second time when he does obey, his heart is not right. And that's where God's going to mess with us. Because we can be sitting in this church, we can read our Bibles, we can do everything that we know is holy and religious and right, and our hearts can still be far from God. And Jonah's heart was still far from God, though he outwardly was obedient to God in chapters 3 and 4. All right? Uh, okay, let's go uh, to the next So there's so many themes in Jonah. And race and nationalism is one of the biggest themes that comes right at the beginning of Jonah. Since Jonah is more concerned about his nation's military security than over a city of lost people. Let's stop there for a minute and let me kind of explain. We'll probably see a little bit more of this as we go on in the slides. But you have to understand who the Assyrians were to the Israelites, what this capital city represented. I would say this, and we'll read this again, but this would be equal to a Jewish rabbi going on the streets of Berlin and preaching to the Nazis to repent and that there is a chance for God to pour out his mercy and forgiveness upon them. Any rabbi would know that is a suicide mission. You want me to go to the center of Berlin, the Nazi headquarters, who are ravishing and out to destroy the Jewish nation, and you want me to preach, and I can tell you want me to go preach because there's a chance that they can be forgiven and not undercome, uh, uh, undergo your wrath or your judgment, God. First of all, if you're a Jewish rabbi, you'd want them to pay the price of what they've already done. So just by going to preach, God's saying there is a chance these people can turn around. So to Jonah, that's what this is like because the history of the Assyrian people. The Assyrian people were the terrorist state of that day. Take any terrorist organization that you can think of, whether it was we just came out of, out of the remembrance of 9-11. No matter what name we hear of all these terrorist groups in Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and infiltrating cells around the world, take any of those names and the Assyrians make them look like sissies. The Assyrians were maybe the most violent, the most uh, vulgar, the most evil group of people that may have ever walked the earth. In some ways, they make the Nazis look lightweight. Not that I don't want to diminish what happened uh, in the Holocaust. But I just tell you, these people are bad. They, uh, there is accounts written by the Assyrian generals and others of when they came and conquered a country. It's too much mixed company in here for today of the small children, and I don't want to go through the gruesome details of what they did. But let me say, it's beyond our comprehension that people could do that to other people. And so, to Jonah, the word of the Lord comes and said, these people who are so horrible, I want you to go and preach the word of God to them. Jonah would have known this is a suicide mission because they hate Israel. Secondly, he would have known, wait a minute, you wouldn't have me preach to them unless there's a possibility that they will repent and receive your mercy, and I don't want that for them. I want them to be destroyed because of the enemy of Israel. That's that nationalism, and he hates them as a race of people. And so God does the unthinkable with Jonah. Secondly, this is, uh, secondly, thirdly, fourthly, fifthly, whatever, how many numbers I've already used. This is different than any other prophet we've run up against in the Old Testament. Almost every prophet in the Old Testament is asked to go prophesy to their own people. 
I want you to go to Israel and tell them that they have forsaken me, that they have false gods before me, that they're living in idolatry, that they don't follow my ways, that they have grown cold of heart, that they have made me secondary or tertiary. They have pushed me down the line of who I am in their lives. And so the prophets, the Jeremiah's, and the Isaiah's, and others would come to Israel and speak. You can turn around, give your heart back to the Lord, avoid judgment of God. The major and minor prophets in the Old Testament do that. But this is the first prophet we run across who is called not to go to his own people, but to go to Gentiles, to go to people who are not Jews by birth or practice, to go to them and preach there is a God who loves them, and he wants them to repent so they don't suffer his judgment. He has a heart for this terrorist state. Now, that should mess with all of us because our news daily is the terrorists. We've experienced it on our own soil on 9-11. We have lost thousands of young men and women in fighting terrorism in the last decade or more around the world. And so this is a strange word. If God came to you tonight and said, I want you to go preach to this certain, he would name a terrorist state, I just want you to think of what that would be like. And you'd say, but wait a minute, I can't do that because they're our enemy. And I believe in the United States. And I don't even like that race of people. I don't like their religion. I don't like what they do. This is the challenge that Jonah had, and it should also kind of wreck our world a little bit and start saying, who is this God we serve with this immense heart for even the worst of the worst, that he loves them and wants to gather them into his flock? Down there, God's call to mission, it has many things. Uh, we know some people feel like I'm supposed to go serve the Lord in this city, and I'm not just calling missions overseas. Could be missions some other place in the United States. Could be at the Crow Indian Reservation. It could be missions in running a service in Yellowstone National Park. It could be missions somewhere that's outside your comfort zone that you leave your people, your friends, for at least a temporary time being, if not for a longer period of time, you relocate because you believe God's called you there. This is a, a call to missions. Many times Jonah is preached by missionaries or at services where we want people to say, are there any people here called to missions? And we want to pray for you. We want, maybe you've run from that. Maybe you're headed to Tarshish and God wanted you to go to Nineveh. And so it's also been used that way. That's the most common way Jonah is talked about as a missionary book. So since Jonah at first flees from the call of God and later go, grows to regret that. Let's go to the next slide. Now, uh, some other themes in Jonah. Struggles believers have to obey and trust God. We all have struggles. Jonah is just another man like us. And he had struggles in obeying God. He couldn't understand the big picture. He knew God asked him to do this. Didn't make sense to him. So a reflection of those problems we have. The process of sanctification. That's a fancy uh, $2 word in scripture that means the process of us becoming like Jesus, okay? And so it's not one and done. This book is so hopeful to me. This, <laughs> the message of Jonah has brought me such hope because so many times I haven't obeyed God. So many times that I should have done something and I didn't do it. And I seem like maybe I've been eliminated from the best plan God from, had for my life. Maybe I'm on the, uh, the preferred, or, the, or not the preferred, but the, the um, uh, permissive will of God. God will let me do this, but it's not what he wanted me to do. And so I've disobeyed him. But what's amazing is the third chapter starts, and the second chapter is the word of God comes to Jonah again. It comes again. It brought such hope to me. I, don't, I hope it does to you. I don't care how many times you've blown it, how many times you think, I haven't been obedient to God. I failed again. God's not through with you. It isn't one and done. He keeps coming back to Jonah, working on him, wanting his heart to be like his, wanting him to do the job he's called him to do. So I hope you find great hope in that. Uh, I'll tell you, early in the morning, sitting, drinking my coffee, reading my Bible, reading Jonah, I've gotten such hope 
that God forgives and brings the word of God and his will to us again and again and again. It's the first book in the Bible to deal with God's love and call to the Gentiles. We already talked about that. That was foreign to the Jews. And that would have been, just think, if you were Jonah and never seen another prophet, ever heard anybody called to go preach to those that is not Israel, God's chosen people, you would be freaked out. Like, I don't feel like a pioneer. I don't have that courage. Matter of fact, I'm going the other way. Oh, there's a ship going to Tarsus. I'm on it. Now, and so many more. Let's go to the next slide. So, uh, lessons from Jonah himself. Jonah wants a God of his own making. Here's the problem for Jonah, is that second bullet point, a God who smites the bad people. We don't use smite much anymore, do you? Like, let's go smite those elk. You know, we don't do that kind of thing. Okay, we don't do that. Okay, God smites the bad people, the Ninevites, and blesses the good people, Jonah and his countrymen. Now, just so there's no confusion, I want you to know, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So sometimes I refer to them as the Assyrian people. Sometimes we call them the Ninevites, the ones living in that city. So it's Assyrians living in Nineveh. It would be like Americans who live in Cody. Okay? So the word is kind of interchangeable. It's just that Nineveh, the city, is the target of God for Jonah to go preach at. Okay? So... That's, that's who Jonah wants. He wants a God who punishes the evil and rewards his chosen people, Israel. Now, Anne Lamont, a lady uh, that this, this uh, quote I have of her haunts me all the time in a good way. Uh, it, it is, God speaks to me through it. And it's basically kind of a summary of what's going on in the book of Jonah. It says, you can safely assume... You've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. You have, we have created God in our image when he hates the same people we do. And this is Jonah's problem. God, I hate those people. Those people are enemies. They're the enemy of Israel. I'm a proud patriot of Israel. I believe in Israel. I want to stand for Israel. I don't want to go to our enemies. What will everybody else say? God, you can't love those people because I know you, God. You love us. You don't love our enemies. At that point, Jonah should have been alerted, and this is what God does through these four chapters, is trying to say, Jonah, you've really created me in your image, not in who I am, and I want to create you in my image. And so Jonah got it backwards, and all of us can do that. Okay, let's go to the next slide. All right, the call of Jonah, like no other. I already went through this. Until Jonah's call, Israel prophets were sent to others, but Jonah's to go to Nineveh. The Assyrians are the enemies. And Assyria would eventually, now, next to the bottom bullet point there is important. I haven't mentioned that now. The Assyrians would eventually overrun and capture Israel in 722 B.C., and Jonah went to Nineveh about 786 to 746, somewhere in there. We can cross-reference that. It's in 2 Kings. I don't think I'm going to take time to read that this morning. I may have a slide for it, but let's, uh, I just want you to know that Jonah goes there about, uh, if he's there in uh, 722, captures Israel, then uh, that's after Jonah, because remember the numbers count down in B.C., right? Right? So, uh, Jonah ends up there uh, way before the Assyrians capture Israel because they captured Israel. But it had been prophesied that they're going, that Israel would be captured by the Assyrians. We can read other prophecies in the Old Testament that says, Israel, unless you put me first, unless you repent, unless you come back to me, unless you put a king on the throne who follows me, the Assyrians are going to overrun you and ravage your nation. And so Jonah knew this prophecy. He knew it, but by going to them, uh, it seems to negate the prophecies of Nahum. Let's go, on, um, let's go on to the next slide. Why would God want to speak to the worst enemies of Israel? Why send a prophet with a word from God unless there would be a chance for Nineveh to avert judgment, a chance for the Assyrians to receive God's mercy? He would be 
proving Nahum to be a false prophet if the Assyrians repented. Because Nahum said, Assyria itself will be judged by God for their evil and the terrorism that they brought upon the face of the earth. Nahum, the prophet, already prophesied that. So Jonah looks like, if I go and preach and they repent, it'll make Nahum look like a false prophet. How can that be? And Jonah would be like a rabbi of the streets of Berlin, I already talked about that, in 1941, who would preach to uh, the Nazis. All right, let's go to the next slide. Okay, more lessons from Jonah. When the real God keeps showing up and keeps calling Jonah to a mission, he is thrown into despair. Jonah, he, he frets during this entire book. You will see him, like, pulling his hair out. I imagine he'd be bald by the end of this. Jonah cannot reconcile God's mercy with his judgment. It's impossible. God, you're the God of mercy, but you're the God of judgment too. You have to reward those that love you and come to you. You must judge those that disobey you and are the enemies of God. And God is both merciful and full of judgment too. We know he is a God of mercy and judgment. This is called the righteousness of God. The righteousness is it's got both the mercy and forgiveness and both the judgment uh, contained in that word righteousness. So how can God be merciful to those people who have done such evil and violent acts and are evil? They need to be judged. How can God be both merciful and just at the same time? He cannot figure out how can God pour out his mercy on these people that should be judged. It's not possible. We have the advantage this side of the cross. We understand how God's Judgment and mercy can live together. It lived together in Jesus on the cross. He took our judgment, and we received the mercy. We should be also under judgment for our sins, for we too were enemies of God, for we have all rebelled and sinned against him. And on the cross, Jesus perfectly married the mercy and justice of God into one person who we celebrated by sharing the cup and the bread this morning. And so Jonah doesn't have that perspective. Just think if you've never seen that God could be merciful and justice, just at the same time. How could that happen? All right, let's go. Uh, next slide. The book yields many insights about God's love for societies and people beyond the community of believers. We, we can actually become a club and say God loves us more as Christians, on this Sunday morning, sitting in church all over the world, than those people that are not in church. And I don't know if you've ever thought that. I don't know if I've overtly thought that. But I know it's, it couldn't be an undercurrent in my life. It can be some kind of assumption I have that's very dangerous. It shows Jonah's toxic nationalism and his disdain for other races. And how can we be like Jonah in mission for God, but still have wrong and sinful attitudes in our own hearts? So this is what our journey through the book of Jonah is going to teach us. We haven't, we've only read the first three verses, and I'm just trying to explode to, and actually I'm giving you some of the answers before we ever get there. All right, let's go to the next slide. Okay, how can God be most merciful and just? Talked about that already. Um, let's go down to the third bullet point where I've got some gold letters. I don't know if you can read those. I'm sorry they're so small, but it makes us look forward to the ultimate Jonah. In Matthew 12, Jesus talks about the book of Jonah, right? So it's important. Jesus says, this book's important because it's kind of about me in a lot of ways. So it says there, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. He's talking to the Jews in Israel right now in about the year 33 AD. He said, the men of Nineveh, the men and women of Nineveh, who were the enemies of Israel, who Jonah went and they repented, okay, will stand up in judgment against this generation, the chosen people of God, and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the ultimate Jonah. Jesus is uh, the fulfillment of Jonah. And you'll be astounded at the end of the book of Jonah, the picture we have of him in contrast to Jesus, all right? And then uh, Jesus is both the just and the justifier of those who believe. Romans, Romans 3.26 says he did it to demonstrate his righteousness the present time 
so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We'll unpack that later. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So do you feel like you're in college class here? Sorry, it's a little bit, uh, kind of the way I teach a little bit. But I want to, uh, this is some, may seem somewhat academic to you at the beginning, but I want you to know it's not. It's trying to unfold the heart of God for us in there. Okay, uh, Jonah needs heart surgery, don't we all? The story of Jonah with all its twists and turns is about how God takes Jonah, sometimes by the hands, other times by the scruff in the neck, okay, to show him God's love for all. Jonah runs and runs, but the Lord is always a step ahead, and God varies his strategies with us too and continually extends mercy to us in new ways, even though we neither understand nor deserve it. That's a quote from Tim Keller. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Now, let me talk a little bit about storms. All right, let's go back uh, to, don't, to Jonah. And I don't think I have these verses up on the screen, so let's just read from verse 4 on. So now he's in this ship. Oh, let me say one thing about verse 3. If you have that up somewhere in your Bible, or could you run back to that slide with, uh, with, chap with verses 1 through 3? Go back here. I think, yep, there it is. Okay, verse 3 up there. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So I want you to know, sin will always cost us something. He had to pay a fare to get on a ship to run away from God. It was free if he would have went to Nineveh. All right? Have you heard that Stan Simmons, who... Uh, help start Faith Chapel and Billings, and many other pastors have used this. It says, uh, sin always costs you more than you want to pay and always will keep you more longer than you want to stay. Sin costs you more than you'll ever want to pay, and it will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And in this third verse, we see this principle that he had to pay to sin. There's a cost when we run away from God. There's a cost paid. That, there's mercy. God brought the second time, came to Jonah, but Jonah suffered some things, near-death experiences. He came under a giant storm. So now let's go to uh, verse 4. And we'll uh, just spend a little time on storms. So you can go back to that slide on storms while we read this. Verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. All right, so a couple things here. A storm comes. The people on the ship, they're multi-deity um, people. There's all kinds of gods. Everybody, uh, the crew on the ship and the other passengers all have different gods they're praying to. It said each one prayed to their own God. Trying to, like, we're afraid. The sailors each cried to their own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. This was a severe storm. The ship's breaking apart. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Pretty amazing when you can take melatonin in the midst of this. Okay. Now, so he's sleeping in this great storm. And he knows what's going on. He doesn't care about the storm. He's just trying to get away from going to Nineveh. He's trying to get away from being obedient to God. He's going the other way. And he doesn't care what's going on in the ship. He's saving his own neck. He doesn't care about the others. Verse 6, the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. They obviously knew he was a Jew and that he served the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he said, well, you better get into prayer, too. We're all praying to our gods, and we need everybody on deck, in, so to speak, in praying. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us, this storm? We're losing cargo. We're losing the way we pay the, uh, our wages in this ship, and the ship's about destroyed. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? And from what are your people? Or so, from what people are you? So they start asking these questions. Now, we're going to cover that next week, that part about 
how Jonah explains who he is. And this inquiry from the sailors into his nationality, into his race, and into his beliefs. But in these storms, let me uh, talk about this. Sin always produces a storm. All throughout Scripture, and I don't know about your life, but every time I sin, it produces a storm in my life. It may be a small storm. It may be a giant storm. But at always, God, is in his mercy, comes and makes me uncomfortable because he doesn't want me to keep sinning and cause these storms in my life. He wants me to come to him to be forgiven, to be cleansed, and so that the waters and the waves and the wind will cease. Just as he stood up in the boat with his disciples and said, be still. He wants to do that in my life as I jump back in the boat with him and I don't rebel against him. So <clears throat> the storm in Jonah is a result of Jonah's sin for running <clears throat> and disobeying God. The storm affected all around him and those who traveled with him. So I want you to know, you might think, I can do this sin. It doesn't affect anybody else. That's a big mantra in our society today. What do you care if I do this? It doesn't affect you. Wrong. Storms that are a result of our disobedience to God affects others around us. Just ask families of people who have been affected by great sin, whether it's adultery, whether it's addictions, whether it's any other kind of sin, embezzlement, lying, cheating, stealing, disobeying God, gluttony, whether it's uh, uh, envy, strife, meanness to others, all those lists of things we could do. The storms affect our family and those around us. They affect the people in Cody. The storm leads the sailors to genuine faith in God, even though it's not their fault. So we're going to read that next week. Can you believe it? All the sailors become believers. You'll see that if you read through it this week. It's like, wow, this God, we're going to serve him. And Jonah's still not serving him. Okay, Jonah, even though he's a prophet of God, all right, and warm stuff at the bottom, another quote from Tim Keller, when storms come into our lives, whether as a consequence of our wrongdoing or not, Christians have the promise that God will use them for, the go for their good. What does Romans 8, 28 says? In essence, it says, for God can use all things for our good. That we, if we love him and seek him, he can even create us into his image. And so we're going to stop there in Jonah today. And I just want to review a couple things. This is about obeying the word of God. There's a cost to fleeing. And sin always produces storms. I want to say this before I close in prayer. <clears throat> but not all storms that you experience are a result of your sin. We all experienced storms. Sin always produces storms in our lives. But not all storms are from our sins. Because we live in a fallen world. I think just last night, nine people were shot in Kansas City at a bar. Innocent people. A guy walks in there, another mass shooting. Now, that's a storm beyond belief. We don't know if the people were sinning. Is that because of their sin? Most likely not. It's because we live in this fallen world, and so we face storms every day. And so God is there to deliver us from these storms, but it's just a fact of life storms come to us. The only storms we can control are the ones we produce through our disobedience to God. And so I want to be personally so obedient to God to lessen the storms in my life. I want to know even if I am in a storm that I didn't create because of my disobedience, that God can still use that for my good. God can use all things to make me into his image and to make me like him. He wants me to come like him. I also love the fact that this book is so hopeful about God coming a second, a third, a fourth, that this is a process for us to become like Jesus. It is a not one and done. We are always in process with God. And so no matter where we are daily, we can still know God loves us, still working with us, and still wanting to give us his heart, even if we're on a ship to Tarshish. And so would you, are you willing to go through the book of Jonah with me? Are you kind of going to freak out? Okay, I hope I gave you a little flavor there today. And uh, let's take a moment to pray and uh, just ask God to uh, begin to work in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we don't want to miss you 
in anything we read in the Word. But Lord, as we now begin this journey with the book of Jonah, I pray that you would crack open our hearts where they have become callous and hard, that you would make them soft and pliable by your Spirit, that you would teach us to obey your Word, even when it doesn't make sense. Lord, to Jonah, this command made no sense. Why go on a suicide mission? And so, Lord, we many times may be confronted with your spirit telling us to do something that makes no sense, that even scares us, that, like, Lord, might even terrify us. And we don't understand why. But, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the grace to obey you. And even if we haven't, Lord, you come again to dwell with us. You come again to call us. You come again to bring us into obedience with you. And Lord, may we not, maybe we're guilty, Lord, but I pray that you would remove this from us of creating you in our image. That, Lord, we'd understand you're bigger than us. That you're not as stingy with love as us. You're not as judgmental as we are. That you are the God of grace and mercy. And that, Lord, um, wherever we've created you in our image, Lord, remove that and begin to reform our image of you as you truly are. The God who even loves our worst enemy. And, Lord, in this room, we probably all have somebody that we might consider a slight enemy or somebody we'd rather not talk with. Or somebody, we see them in the store and we kind of go around the end of the aisle so they don't see us. Lord, uh, there's probably somebody in each of our lives like that. And so, Lord, um, may we this week have your heart for those people. May we again love those that you love. And be with us, Jesus. Thank you for all the children in here. I hope that they will know Jonah bigger than just a story of a whale swallowing a man that they'll know it's your love and striving with us until we be transformed to your image. We love you, Lord. Bless this church in this new chapter as they forge ahead. God, I pray this would also be a place where many who don't know you would come, that many would come here, and maybe even those that we would consider Ninevites, that we would think were from the, the nation of Assyria, that they would come and find your love and mercy. And you would open our arms to love them and to be your hands and feet. So we thank you, Jesus. Bless this week. May we be grace and peace and mercy be multiplied unto us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And God's people said, amen, amen. amen.